Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 161, You're Not Listening. On today's episode, listen in as we discuss a new nonfiction book from Kate Murphy. It's entitled, You're Not Listening, and it's all about the fine art, the inherent power, and the cultural decline of listening in today's world. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey! It seems to me... It seems to me that if someone's listening to this podcast, that they don't need this book. What? Yeah, I was, you know, I, I, podcast. I was thinking about podcasting throughout while I was reading it, and she doesn't really talk about it all as much as I thought she would. I thought there would be a whole chapter dedicated to the fact that, like, the proliferation of podcasts seems to indicate that people are actually listening more than less. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Well, we can we'll we'll talk about it, and if anyone has any opinions, they can respond. <laughs> wow boom <laughs> guys did you see by the way i know julia saw it because i sent it to her it turns out someone on the internet doesn't like me and you took it and sewed it into a beautiful flag that you're wearing at your own personal halftime show she gave me this this fine listener gave me the greatest compliment that i've ever received in my entire life that i am and here i quote bad fucking energy yes yes i even changed our our twitter bio to reflect <laughs> that I am bad, Todd, bad fucking energy Goldberg. <laughs> this is a oh, good way God. to start off our listening show. <laughs> I, that, well, so I, I brought it up for a very specific reason. Um, because, I well, number one, I found it amusing, of course. Um, but this person who, you know, her, her opinion is, is surely valid. Um said that she can't bear to listen to the show because I'm such an asshole and that I'm bad fucking energy, which makes me think, well, then how does she know? <laughs> now she made it five minutes into an episode. Uh, maybe uh, she made it through a couple episodes. I don't know. If she doesn't listen, how does she know what a horrible person I am? I mean, she's not wrong. When I, when I showed it to Wendy, Wendy was like, well, you are a lot. And I was like, I am a lot. I am a lot. I am. Um, you know, I do admire you, though, because if that was said about me, I would, like, curl into a ball for at least an hour. You know? <laughs> me too. Right. I certainly would not make it into a, my own meme to spread <laughs> the way and you I have. And I certainly but wouldn't I think that's take... kind of the point, isn't it? That That is why she thinks Todd is bad fucking energy. Right. So yeah. it's ironic because only Todd would get that kind of comment because he's willing to put himself out there and, as as such an extremist in his opinions. <laughs> and you're, you're very outspoken. You are who I, you are. You're, un, am, you're un, uh, unapologetic outspoken. about it. Yeah. And that that inherently will turn some people off. And um, anyway, I'm proud to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very and, much. And you even did. though I disagree with you often, and uh, I do know what she means by bad fucking energy. I am bad or, fucking a lot. Energy. Yeah. The thing that <laughs> I'm glad you're here. The thing that's the problem is that if you listen to the show, you you'd you'd know that I control the Twitter. So if you tag <laughs> the right disco, you're just saying, "Hey, Todd, I think you're a dick." 
Um, and then I feed off of that. But, you know, here's the funny thing. Um, I was, uh, I mean, I, that's not to say it doesn't, you know, of course it makes you feel a little bad that not everyone on Earth likes you, but not so bad. Um, but I, I did an event this past week. Um, I did a bunch of events this past week, but I did this big event here locally where I live. And I had written an op-ed in the local newspaper about a local writer's festival, the Ranch Mirage Writer's Festival, which has existed for uh, seven years. And they've, they bring out the best authors in the world. Like this time, Jennifer Egan was there and George Saunders, just all these fantastic writers that I would love to go see. Um, but I've never bought a ticket to the event. Tickets are $500. And um, I think that's an exorbitant price, but wow. they can charge whatever they want. But the bigger issue for me has always been that in the seven years that they have done this Writers' Festival, it is the whitest Writers' Festival I've ever seen in my entire life. They've had 350 authors and two Mexicans. And every year they have their authors serenaded by a mariachi band, but they don't bother to have any Latino authors um, show up. Is that true? That is true. That's... and so I wrote, um, I wrote an op-ed about the festival and how their prominence in the region uh, in Southern California and the quality of the programming that they have requires them to be more socially conscious. I mean, they've only had 19 writers of color, period, in seven years. And wow. just, to, just to give you a sort of a litmus test, the LA Times Festival of Books last year had 200 writers of color attend as as guest guest authors so it's not possible to find someone so at any rate i wrote an op-ed um with uh with several other writers with susan Strait and alex espinoza um and um victoria chang um and victoria chang it's notable she directs the mfa program at antioch which is the arch rival of my mfa program ucr uh but she also runs the idlewild writers workshop um during the summers just up the hill from here in palm springs and I contacted her, and we're, we're friends. We know each other. Um, and I was like, "Hey, do you want to do you want to talk about this?" And so we wrote this this sort of scathing op-ed about this thing. And I've written local scathing op-eds about a lot of things because, as writer said, I'm not shy about my opinions. And yeah. I expected a lot of blowback from this one, but I didn't really get any. Um, and then I was at this event, and people kept coming up to me to thank me for speaking out because they were too afraid to do it or they didn't know how to express themselves um, or whatever it might be. Um, and I was really surprised. The The odd thing was they said they didn't want to comment publicly on it, like on Facebook or on the Desert Sun or something like that, um, because they didn't want other people to think they were supporting such a liberal point of view. I was like, a liberal yeah. point of view? You're in California in a city with a Mexican or not Mexican, a Spanish word in the name, Rancho Mirage. Right. And it's, it's not, it's, you're not subversive asking them to be inclusive. Um, which then made the person I said that to feel upset. Yeah. <laughs> bad but fucking energy. That's bad fucking energy, man. <laughs> um, but the, the point being that um, I think this job that we have as writers and artists and entertainers, you got to, in this era of our lives, you got a job, and that is to be upfront with your opinions and to say what you feel, and, because there's going to come a time when you wish you still had that right, I assure you. Um, so anyway, that's my soapbox for the day. That's Todd, bad fucking energy, out. Wow. <laughs> I just dropped the mic. Well. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's a good point, man. I mean, I like I said, I think it's 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 important that uh, people have the courage to say things like you do. Um, uh, I also I'm say often... the wrong thing a lot. I'm also wildly inappropriate. Right, right. your batting average is <laughs> bad, about but at least you're at that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not great. I'm not a saint, uh, and I'm not a martyr. I'm just a boy coming to you. No. There's standing a, in front there's of a, a girl, girl standing in front of you. There's a painting. You're, you're... I'm Hugh Grant. No. <laughs> well, we'll no. figure it out by the end of the show. Hard no. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about listening. Yes. All right. So Kate Murphy is a Texas-based journalist. Uh, she has written a lot for the New York Times. Um, but as far as we could tell in our two seconds of research before the show started, this is her first <laughs> book. Um, which, and it has already here. been selected uh, uh, for a couple best books of uh, 2020. Um, I was when I when I when I the, my, when I got this book and I looked at the cover, my first thought is: Is it going to hurt sales? That like giving this book to somebody is basically saying you're not listening because it felt very aggressive. Just to just to look at the book, I was like. Oh, wow. You're not listening. Uh, I know. Can, can you imagine giving this to somebody and they open it up for a Christmas gift? It just says, you're not listening. Um, but that is kind of the thesis of the book, right? Is that we are all not listening very well as a culture. Um, uh, and then as individuals to each other, yeah. to um, mm-hmm. to uh, our politics, to everything. So uh, what do you guys think? Well, I'll, I'll jump in first um, because... I was the one who floated this to the top. There was an op-ed in the New York Times that was a condensed version of this book um, that was shared widely around my improv world um, for obvious reasons. I mean, I wanted us to do a pop psychology or pop sociology book, as this is, um, with kind of a self-helpy twist. We've never done that. Um, (laughs) But uh, this is, I've become obsessed with this topic. Um, working in improv and being a parent and other many of the other jobs I do, I like, I don't think the title's aggressive enough. I couldn't (laughs) agree more. I have learned no one listens. And I don't mean listens to, you know, podcasts, like people learn, but they, it is shocking how often people are just waiting for their turn to talk. Absolutely. Um, I I have experienced that so much. <laughs> also, it's an intervention and sort of a shout out to all our listeners who want you guys to listen to me more. Uh, no, I think you guys are are good listeners. Um, but I have experienced this firsthand so many times and have had to break it to, at this point, hundreds of people that they're not listening at all. Mm-hmm. And to see them kind of take that in and deal with it has been fun and <laughs> very difficult and sad at the end of the day yeah. I, I often feel sad like this so few people are actually really good at this yeah so. i i am um, i really enjoyed it too i think she's um she's a really excellent writer number one um and able to convey complex uh scientific research um in a in a very nice conversational manner in a way uh she's sort of mary roach-esque i would say um mm-hmm. while talking about something that's Far less tactile, playful, yeah, yeah. Far less tactile than you know, a dead body. Like she's talking about a thing that's happening in our brain, um, but just a, a a very enjoyable style, perfect for the Sunday New York Times Magazine, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can read these chapters 
really in any order that you want, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I read it. I didn't read it all in one sitting. I read it in, in piecemeal over um, over a week or so. But um, as a as a professor, I'm acutely aware <laughs> of, of people not listening. <laughs> acutely. Um, and acutely aware of the moment at which one of my students will pick up their phone and begin to look at it. Um, and I think that's that's a more pressing issue, I think, for high school teachers than it is for uh, college professors. And that's why you see a lot of these classrooms that have this, you know, zero phone policy and all that. Um, it's a little less obvious for me when I'm teaching a, a, a writing workshop because, of course, we're sitting around a table and everyone's engaged in a conversation that requires active listening, at least for one of the people in the room, the person that's being critiqued. That being said, the other people in the room often are not active listeners and they only want to get their point across. And that goes to a, a chapter in this book about hearing differing opinions and how you tune yourself off and, and how hearing a differing opinion is like being chased by a bear or something like that, <laughs> uh, which I thought was fascinating. So there's that side of it. The side as a, um, what we do here, the three of us on this show, like it, it's required that we're listening. Like we have an entire show that is an argument. (laughs) (laughs) And so you have to be sort of aware of one another. And then I I have another show that's uh, an interview show. um, And so you always have to be listening. So as a person who's a writer though, like listening is the most important part of it. Because for me, one of the great joys is talking to a stranger, asking them questions hearing unusual things and being able to use that somewhere else. I I am fascinated by the lives of others. I talk to everyone and anyone and I ask questions that I probably shouldn't ask. My my poor wife, you know, uh, <laughs> is known to say like not everyone needs your joke today, Todd. <laughs> but like like I I genuinely like to talk to people except when I don't like to talk to people and then I really don't want to. Um, but well, to that point, I really liked the way near the end of the book, she talks about how being a good talker actually requires being a good listener and how you actually are listening while you're talking. In in other Mm -hmm. words, you're reading the other person's face and like, you're making sure that they're listening or you're reading the room. If you're like a stand-up comedian, she talked about reading the room and I thought that was so accurate. So that was really to your point, Todd, because you are a very, you're, you're a very good talker and you also are very, um, you, you do a lot of public speaking, you right. get up and, and you're good at reading the room. Like that's a skill that you have. You adjust based on, you know, where you were at. And, yeah. and I, you that's have such to. a, it's such a unique skill that a lot of people who are good at maybe like standing up and reciting things, right. like that's not yeah. the same thing as being a good public speaker. You know, it's not yeah. it, public speaking requires listening. It's well, really interesting. And, and the other part of it that I was thinking about as I read the book is an anecdote a friend of mine told me about working with um, a talk show host whose name I won't reveal um, because eventually we're all going to have to work with some of these people. And what my friend said was he takes on, well, now we know it's a he, uh, he takes on the personality of whoever he's talking to and not just on television, but just in a one-to-one conversation he mm. takes on your personality and so he begins to mirror you and so he yeah. listens to you and starts to use your language and all these things 
Which is fascinating, and it makes you probably a pretty good talk show host. It also makes you a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'm. I'll I'm say. So the book itself touched on a lot of things I'm deeply interested in, and also a lot of things that I am aware of myself being both good at and bad at. I, I bloviate, but I also feel like I listen well because I'm always listening for peculiar details about people's lives. Mm-hmm. Like, I can ask someone about their job and hear anything. And, and like, if I meet a plumber, I want to know, like, what the bad day in plumbing was, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so interesting. And I, I do that, too. And I run some improv shows that are like that. But I was just going to, on, like, the listening to your crowd thing, I coach a lot of improv teams now. And sometimes after the show, I'll, they'll, I'll be like, how was the show? And they'll be like, I don't know. And then I'll be like, well, when did the audience laugh? And if it's a good improv team, they know they can like recall 40 minutes earlier. And if they're a new team, they're like, I don't know. I was so like in my head and whatever. And it's like, you can't connect with an audience if you're not hearing them literally breathe (laughs) or not breathe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, similarly, like I, I, I think because of what I have done so much of my life acting, I've had to learn how to listen, you know? Um, In fact, like I, you know, I, because I started as a child actor way back when uh, VHS cameras were not as available. <laughs> it used to be that you would go to audition when there would be never be a camera in the room. Oh, it would just wow. be you connecting with the people in the room, the producers, the director, whoever, you know, the casting director, whoever's there. Right. And I really, I hated when the camera got involved because people stopped, like there was a disconnect and, and suddenly... Mm-hmm auditioning became much more about performing for, you know, people who were going to watch it later, uh, mm. in the, you know, and, and that changed the dynamic. And, and it took a lot for me to sort of just focus on the people that are in the room or the person that I'm reading with and, and just, you know, listen to them because, you know, so much of acting is listening and responding, you know, mm-hmm. the old acting is reacting thing. Um, yeah, I was really glad she included that piece about improv. Um, yeah. Was that in the original New York Times article? It wasn't. Of course, I was delighted, but also, and I mean, this is, if I can move to a more critical view on this book, mm-hmm. um, like so many fun nonfiction books, of which I read a, a billion, like I read this in like three hours. This is, I'll do this all the time. I'll be like, oh, that sounds good. Um, it's like a lot of the fun podcasts I listen to all crammed into one, like some of these actual studies I had heard of before on a hidden brain or emotional things on terrible. Thanks for asking. And it got really like to the subject is so huge. There was so much like little stuff about a million things. And some of it that I know more about, I was like, Oh man, it's, it's painful to have something that you know and care a lot about given like, a two paragraph treatment. Right. Um, and not just improv, but things like attachment parenting or, you know, literature mm-hmm. or all of these things that I'm just like, whoa, she's, re- this is a real drive by. Um, and so I was a little sad that some things were just sort of mentioned that could have really been looked at more critically. Um, it felt really like pop condensed Breezy. to me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, breezy. Well, but interestingly, yeah. isn't that kind of a requirement of the genre? Like, because I, I had, I yeah, have the same thought, but, but I also don't read these types of books. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, like, yeah. but these are, and, and we, you know, we, 
we talked before we started recording that we've never covered a book like this. Well, we did and cover, that's what, we did do Jared's book, Jared Yates Sexton's book on toxic masculinity. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, but that had a but memoir I, element. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, go this ahead. is definitely in that like Malcolm Gladwell like pick a subject and go, right. you know, go yeah. expand a like have a like a one sentence thesis about that subject and then sort of like go through a bunch of examples and studies and whatnot to to, to show that or to illustrate that. Yeah, I mean or to strengthen only, your thesis. The book's only 225 pages long. Yeah. Yeah, and I just kept thinking, like, yeah, I want a deeper dive. Like, go here. Or actually what I kind of craved was more like editorializing. Like I wanted more like you know, talk shit about millennials or, or screen usage <laughs> or like, tell us what we should do a little bit more, you know, like get, t- give me some more like hardcore, like this is how to change my life to be a better li-. And she doesn't really do that. But then I realized like, oh, that's not, you know, that's, that's not the type of reader she's trying to get because actually, if you think about it, I mean, all three of us read this book and, and it sounds like we all kind of patted ourselves on the back for being good listeners. Uh, really the book needs to reach people who aren't the good listeners. Right. Right. Um, Does, and, and, and if that person is, if it was too editorial or if it was too much of a deep dive, would that person even bother um, getting through the book? Well, let me push back. Cause I mean, I have spent a lot of time sitting around with you guys talking and listening. And I agree that you're good listeners about certain things and in certain contexts, but (laughs) what I have learned is that everyone thinks there's a, they're a good listener. Like, right. I would question, I wouldn't get too self-congratulatory about your listening. <laughs> um, well, but that's what I want. But, but that's, that's what I wonder. One. Is everybody feel that way about this book? Like, is anybody going to read this book and be like, hmm, that's a good, no, like, mostly what you read is like, yeah, I felt that way when somebody wasn't listening to me. Mm. But do hmm. you take into account your own lack of listening? Um, yes, Absolutely. I mean, I know um, when I'm not listening to people, mm-hmm. like, because sometimes I do it intentionally, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Real talk. Bad well, energy. the part that really, the part that really struck me was the relationship. Yeah. Component, yes. You know? When she had, she, like, she had that that you know, because it's like one thing to say couples, you know, fall apart because they stop listening to each other. Like, yeah, we get that. Like, that kind of makes sense. But she stop takes it a step me. further. <laughs> I'm not listening. Uh, but she takes it a, a step further by saying uh, it's about a lack of curiosity and that right. it's because because you love somebody, you start to assume you know them and therefore you don't need to keep listening to them. And it was and it was weird because it was like, oh, right. That's like a jujitsu way of thinking about it, because it's actually an act of love to shut somebody off. And like, oh, I know them. I love them so much. I don't need to listen to them. And to remember, like, so that was like really pr- I was like, oh, yeah, I totally have that problem with, with my wife, you know, like I just take it for granted that I know her and I know her opinions and I know, you know, what she wants to eat tonight. So I don't have to listen to her. Uh, but that's really crappy relationship. Well, there's, there's a line, there's a line in that chapter where, uh, uh, grandparents are speaking to one another and they've been married for 60 some odd years. And the grandmother says to the grandfather, I'll never understand that man. And you're like, my God, they've been married for 60 years. You'll never understand that man. Well, like that, being surprised emotionally, I think, can be both good and bad. Like, you don't want to find out that your spouse is a Nazi, right? But (laughs) I think you do want to have some level of of intellectual mystery about things periodically. I don't know. I mean, I found that part really compelling. There's a part uh, slightly before that where they um, were doing a study with children crying and basically to teach clinicians how to be good clinicians. Oh, I love and, that part. 
And a woman um, expresses annoyance at her child crying. And the, the clinician says, why do you feel that way? And she says, it reminds me of when I cried when I was a baby and no one came to help me. Or when I was young and no one came to help me. And it's like, oh, let's just rip open Pandora's box and dive in and see see yeah. what's there. Um, but like, but that's the root of um, of what all three of us do. You know, like the subtext is invariably what the three of us are always looking for in whatever art we're making. Writer for you as a writer and as an actor. Surely, Julia, for you as doing improv, subtext is a huge part of it. Um, and so, like, the revelation of the deeper meaning, I I feel like when I'm talking to someone, I'm always trying to find out, like, what the root cause of whatever that thing is that we're talking about. And I find myself mm-hmm. um, in sort of academic situations sometimes when I'm talking to someone who I need something from, for instance, employing a little bit of jujitsu, you know, a little bit of that, that, that sociopath late night talk show thing where you like warm them up by modeling their behavior and asking them like how they feel about these things. How'd you get into this job? How long have you been doing it? What do you like? Blah, blah, blah. Hey, by the way, I need you to sign off on this thing. I need it done now. (laughs) (laughs) And like that's using um using listening as a way to curry favor and that makes me feel a little gross you know (laughs) to be perfectly honest but it's also like the way people operate on a human level with one another you you show interest in something so that you build a bridge to that other person and then you two can get over whatever obstacles between you and that obstacle might be "I, i want my frappuccino or that obstacle might be i want i want to date you whatever it might be you know, it's so I I agree that we are all good at this on a certain level because we do it all the time. And I think what infuriates me the most on a day to day level is like it's so easy. Um, it's so easy to be an active listener, I think, when yeah, you really just truly. create the habit. And I have this um, I do a lot of work writing grants at the Connecticut Science Center. And it is like grant writing people think is a very private, like you're alone at your desk writing, but really you're just walking around hustling people for information. That's what you're doing. Um, How much is the budget? Can I have this attachment? Blah, blah, blah. Boring, boring. Um, And within like two weeks, I just did exactly what you're describing, Todd, of like, ask everyone around me a couple things about their life. And now People think I'm like so amazing at my job. And I'm like, I'm just nice. <laughs> I was just nice for two weeks. And now I can do anything I want um, because I was paying attention and listening. And I wish like it makes me so sad that so many people struggle with this. Um, but I've seen it a million times. A million yeah. times. And then when you apply it to parenting, it's like heartbreaking, you mm-hmm. know, how much, yeah. how many parents go into parenting as some kind of battle or some kind of like, you know, I'm just making it through this because I'm exhausted, which I empathize with, but is like (laughs) not really the mode that's going to create the best situation. Um, No, that that section where she talks about, you know, just how many parents fall into the trap of like asking their kids for like information. Like, what did you do Uh, today? 
How was school today? How was school? And then they get frustrated because those questions never work. You know, like I only have a five-year-old, but I already know he does not respond well to that. Right. You say like, how was school? And he just goes, uh. and right. it's like, and it's not because nothing happened, but like, so yeah, I've, we've already in our family instituted the like rose and thorn question thing, which has become popular for parents. And it's so, it's, it works every time, which is you just ask the kid, you know, what was the rose of today? What was the thorn? And just the very act of like having to categorize and pick something that was good and pick something that was bad. You end up having like a great conversation, um, you know, and it's, it's just such a better way to like approach the, the, you know, asking a kid for information or get, you know, uh, just getting a conversation going. Mm-hmm. Or the other thing I sometimes do is I just start, I just ask my, my son, I'll be like, you want to hear what my day was? And then he'll be, he's invariably mm-hmm. like, sure. And then I start talking about my day and like, I only get like a sentence or two in because my day's <laughs> always so boring before he jumps in and be like, well, that happened. You know, he'll either like jump on or ask me about something else. And then we're having like a full on conversation, you know, but you just have to like jumpstart something. You can't just be like, tell me. Give me info. Um, so I found that super insightful. Um, and yeah, I guess I kind of wish, you know, this book isn't very, like, I mean, the biggest, I, and maybe here's the, 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 the trickiest part, for me at least, was the political divide question, right? Mm-hmm. Like when, uh, when she goes yes, into the like, and, you know, she yeah. sort of points this out, like we need to be listening to each other and we need to, you know, um, and it, it was hard for me to imagine what the answer was like i didn't feel any clue i mean i felt like she highlighted the problem which is yeah it's true the country is divided and it's hard for me to take somebody who voted for trump seriously so what's the solution exactly um, yeah you know, i mean there's this being empathetic and listening but oh man it's hard there's it's that really hard. she recounts a conversation with a pilot um which was mm-hmm. horrifying to me um but it's horrifying no matter how you look at it so the pilot was saying um, oh, I'd never have a co-pilot who follows Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders or AOC because I feel like they they lack analytical ability. I'm, I'm, par- I'm paraphrasing yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, um, lack judgment and, and the ability to analyze well. And I'm like, all all AOC does is analyze things to the finest near point that says we're all going to die. Uh, I want that in a pilot. But then, like, you understand, oh, gosh, well, our... our emotional point of view our um our political points of view are so diametrically opposed that you can't see uh, a personality trait outside of the um opinion that they attach that trait to and that's like that's a super dangerous problem with the world but i was by the same token (laughs) i don't know if i want a trump supporter flying me around (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's like he's on the you know he's like oh Jews yeah let's take a right into the mountain. So I felt actively like physically uncomfortable during that chapter, and I was like, <laughs> like watching this is gems. data for my for my mind. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I this is so beyond the pale at this point that I was desperate for her to, and of course she doesn't, um, be like. But liberals, you're right. Like I was just waiting <laughs> for the whisper, you know. Right. Um, exactly. And she does, however, have a line. I wish I had bookmarked it, where she was like, "Just because you're listening doesn't mean you have to change your mind, but you will gain something from just shutting up and listening." Again, big paraphrase. But I think right. that's a good way to go into it. You know, it's like your your beliefs 
or people believe their beliefs will be changed if they listen more, but actually the opposite is true. They just gather more data and perspective to, right. you know, solidify the values that they already hold. So right. I think that's the takeaway. It's like we don't have to fear listening because we're suddenly going to change our minds. We just right. have to actively do it and just be quiet. But I'd also, I'd also like to think, and she didn't for me touch on this quite enough, that listening is a way to change other people's minds. In other words, mm -hmm. that by, mm -hmm. you know, like I would have loved to see like her break down, like, you know, because when we when we talk about the political divide, it always becomes the Thanksgiving table conversation, right? right? Like, how do you have, and I kind of wish she had had like a whole section of the book that was just her breaking down how to have the Thanksgiving conversation or like different, different mm -hmm. strategies that do or do not work, you know, because I, that is the fantasy I always have because in my life, it's very self-selecting. Like I do not encounter many people with like, you know, alt-right views, you know, like right. that never happens in my, that's not my neighbor right now. That's not who I work with. Like I live in a liberal bubble. So for me, it's always sort of a fantasy projection of like, well, how would I stand up for what I believe in in the conversation, but still hopefully be respectful enough or change somebody's mind positively, you know? Um, and 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 it seems like what she's getting at is that by by listening, we actually make it more possible for you know for for the the good to win, right? <laughs> like right. the the ultimate good, not like being right on your political candidate versus their political candidate, but the good of a community building that will will everybody will win by listening to each other more. Um, like I want a little bit more editorializing, sort of pushing us in that direction because that's what I'm that's what I'm most worried about. You know, like I'm you know it, it, Trump is going to leave office. There's going to be other horrible people on the right, and there are going to be horrible <laughs> people on the left, and there's going to be great people on the left, and maybe somebody okay on the right. But you know these things are going to keep happening, and so it's really about how do we continue to have these conversations and not get so polarized. And listening to each other obviously is a huge component of that. Um, and and this book still felt a little superficial in that regard when it when it glossed well, over. You it. know the the thing about uh, politicians though, she touches on this a little bit but not uh, specifically to these two points, is that when you look at um, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama compared to um, Trump or compared to George Bush Sr., not George Bush Jr., um, both Clinton and Obama conveyed a sense of empathy. Um, that, and, you know, Clinton is famous for saying, I feel your pain. And that means that he is listening. You know, that means that right. he is taking in what you're saying. Having been in the room with Bill Clinton before, what I can tell you, and, and I, you have too, haven't you, Ryder? Um, uh, no, actually, I haven't. Well, well when I've seen him give a speech, yes. I was in a, I was in a room where mm -hmm. he gave, I've been in multiple rooms where he's given speeches, but I've never shaken his hand. If you, if you talk to him for five minutes, you feel like you are the only person in the world. Like he, that's some, his that's his gift. And, and that's what I, my understanding is that's how people feel when they uh, speak to Obama directly. Um, but Obama also inspired that uh, just in a general way when he was elected. So to have something innate that um, conveys profound human empathy, um, that is a form of listening, even if it's not active. Because what it also does is it allows you to, um, to overlook the things that you find distasteful. So if you think that that person understands your feelings and understands you and has a, a shared belief system with you, you might say, well, even though he's a serial uh, cheater on his wife and even though Obama um, 
got rid of more undocumented uh, immigrants than anyone in American history. Um, we share this belief system, and therefore, uh, I overlook those things. Well, anyone else does those things, and, and I'm up in arms because I don't feel like they have that one other thing, that thing that, that makes me connected to them. And that's where George W. Bush was successful, because he conveyed the sense that he was a guy you could go out and have a beer with, that you might disagree with him, but you wouldn't want to punch him afterwards. And there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for the ability to at least <laughs> appear that you're listening, appear to take in that person's opinion, disagree with it, but disagree with it in a respectful manner that allows you to maintain respect for that person. And I think that's, that's where special politicians come from. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have any of those anymore. <laughs> and not just politicians agree to everything you say, but, you know, teachers mm -hmm. and any leader, any leader should have these qualities. And I think, you know, for me, reading through this book and also my experience, like what people want is to be soothed, you know, and to right. be emotionally regulated and not fucking freaking out um and i thought the best chapter we haven't mentioned it yet um is the one on the listening to yourself and the yeah. voice in your head oh my god i was so yeah. fascinated by this like i didn't know that people perceived the actual voice in their head as louder as the people around than the people around and that's so amazing yeah and then this statistic should be like we need to deal with the statistic where is it um 64% of men in one experiment would rather give themselves an electric shock than be alone in the room with their own thoughts. <laughs> That's crazy. Like, are you guys okay? Like, <laughs> men, men are deeply fucked up if, if you haven't gotten yeah, the memo. So, but what does that mean? It's like they're, what is happening in people's minds? So they need, they need someone outside of them to like soothe them and hear them and listen to them. So you're not just losing it. I mean, the most powerful thing anyone ever said to me about parenting, someone just said it like off the cuff. She was like, Oh, you know, whatever you say to your daughter will become her internal monologue. And she's a teenager. And I was like, <laughs> oh. it, it absolutely like collapsed me because it's true. You know, yeah. like your parent or whoever is that figure in your life, you know, telling you like I can hear my mom being like oh it's okay or whatever all the time in my mind um right right and like we we need outside empathy so that we don't drive ourselves insane I I mean I just love that chapter uh, did you guys see incidentally this is floating around the internet last week um some again some other study that revealed that not everybody has um an internal narrator and Yes. Like, so just to make sure, Ryder, when you think, yeah. are, you're thinking in full, complete sentences or... Obviously. Okay. Yes. And I do too, and Julia does as well. There are some people that apparently just like, it's a triangle like chasing them down a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they think like imagistically or... Yes, their their right. internal monologue is, right. is not words, it's images and emotion, but not words. That's my point. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. yeah. But it makes sense. Well, one of the things that she didn't talk about, and I kept waiting for the chapter to come, what is um, ASMR. Yeah. Oh, she uh -huh. did a little bit. She did? I didn't notice well, it. Well, in a way, when she talks about eargasms. 
Right. Okay. Yeah. But I wanted like a whole chapter on that because to me, it's so fascinating that, that this is something that nobody really noticed until like five years ago. Um, and now it's like such a, and I remember first hearing about it and being like, oh, that can't be true until mm-hmm. I tried it and realized like, I am so responsive. Right. Like, the second Ooh. I hear a woman whispering into a microphone or like nail, like those weird popping sounds, like on my brain, like the back of my head just starts tingling like crazy. And I'm like, oh yeah, ASMR, that's a real thing. Like yeah. there's no doubt. And it goes, you know, and then yeah, when she talks about the, the, the hairs in our ears and all, it was fascinating. Um, but I wanted, I wanted a little bit more like diving in. Like, why is that that we never noticed the whole ASMR thing until like relatively recently? It seems like something that should have come up in, you know, all the human studies the well, last hundred pe- years. People don't often talk about the things that give them pleasure, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if, particularly oh, okay. if it's a weird thing, you know? <laughs> um, they might not talk about what gives them pleasure or what freaks them out. Like, I, only recently have I become aware of the, the thing where people are um, freaked out by like, lots of bumps on the surface or bumps on oh, someone's right. bodies or whatever. Right. Or like the holes, like with people that can't look at like a beehive. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Or like right. the, when the new iPhone came out and it had three camera lenses, people were like, Nope. I was like, what, what, what what's the problem? That's They're weird. like, it's too many, too many holes there. It's like too many holes. It's a lens. It's like, Nope, can't do it. And it, I mean, it, it just goes to show you like the, the depth of human experience is really, like we're just, we're like we're just we're we're swimming in the very shallowest end right now. It's true. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff to as yet to be revealed. Um, but the the other thing that I was thinking about as it relates to this book um, is something that she doesn't really talk about, but which is I think kind of the essence of this entire thing, and it has to do with this idea of you know what makes a person charming and the ability to convey the opposite of what you're feeling, you know what I mean? <laughs> and and that I think has a lot to do with the fake listening that happens um, or the ability to do like what we were talking about earlier about essentially asking people personal questions, learning info about themselves and then getting that thing you want. <laughs> you like a lot of that has to do with this ability just to be sort of charming, right? And it turns out that being charming is just staring someone in the eye and listening to them talk a lot of the times. And smiling. She does have that bit about the fake laugh, which I thought was fascinating. Um, But there's this old saying about charm that goes, um, the essence of charm is that it makes both you and the person you're talking to feel pretty great about you. And and I think that all that's about, that's about listening. And I think the reason we find the internet to be such a fucking cesspool is that, it's obvious that no one's listening. People are just responding, you know, and I think that has changed the way we have discourse and it's changed the way we argue. One of the one of the key things also, I think, about uh, being in a marriage is learning how to fight and learning how to listen to the other person, disagree with them and not hold that as a grudge for the rest of your life, you know, um, and that maybe that's why, you know, so many marriages end in divorce. They don't have that ability to fight with with respect for one another. And I mean, I, I found this whole book fascinating because it talks a lot about just the things that I wonder about just when I'm in target buying some toothpaste or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, just how we, how we talk to one another. Some, I, you know, the other day someone said to me, um, 
<laughs> you'd never say that to my face, you know, like if, and I'm like, I would say that to your face. <laughs> I'm the guy that would say that oh, to your God. face. Um, you certainly are. <laughs> I am. Um, but what does that, what does that say more largely about our culture? You know, like we don't, we're more quick to insult than we are to praise. I don't know. There's a lot of deep stuff in here that is not totally explored, but I think it's a good primer. It's a good conversation starter at the very least. Yeah. I mean, for me, the biggest things are like the screen usage and phone usage. Like that that's what this book really made me think about is how can I... Because I can't, you know, and I'm actually, I think I'm pretty good compared to most people. Uh, you know, I, I'm never somebody who puts the phone on the table. Like if you meet somebody for a meal or mm-hmm. a drink or you're out, like, and I hate when I'm, I, like, I literally don't hang out with people that do that. You know, like that are, that, that you're mid-sentence and they look down at their phone and start texting. I'm like, that's it. Like, we are no longer <laughs> friends. I am not going to continue talking, you know. And oftentimes I've had the moment where I just stop talking. Like, I will stop. And it's just like, no, you can finish your text and then we can continue our conversation. But I'm not going to sit here. But, you know, I also, like, have been realizing I hate texting, even though it's how I communicate with so many people in my life. Um, because I, you know, I always detested the phone, but now I'm realizing like, I need to, I need to overcome that and start talking to people more because it's really bad. Like I hate, you know, like I hate, I, I just hate getting texts from people. Cause it's like, give me information. I'll share information with you uh-huh, back and forth. And then it's over. And it's like, and you're also always on demand. So you're kind of never present where you are. Um, and it drives me crazy. You also have, you have giant weird thumbs. Like Ryder Strong has like the alien thumbs. <laughs> It's just they're the biggest part of his body are his thumb pads. It's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He'll never mention that in interviews because they're not listening. They're just or they're not looking. They're just listening. Huge thumbs. Huge thumbs. Um, so last thing for me, just uh, thinking about this book is like I don't think if you're not a good listener. I so I was I was talking to Wendy about this beforehand about uh, a person in our lives who is not a good listener. And Wendy was like, you only say that because you're very judgmental about this person. And I'm like, I'm judgmental about this person because they don't listen to me when I talk to them. Sounds like a good conversation. All right, go on. And I was like, I should give this book to them. And it's like, it's it's the completely wrong audience. So who, who is this for? Is this just for people that are interested in in the nature of this thing or is it actual self-help i don't view it as self-help so wow you guys are really resisting that this is so interesting okay so i, don't I need think the help i e- pay someone for the help <laughs> even the people who think they're good at it can get better and there is yeah. if everyone got one percent better even if they were pissed off to even see this book on the shelf but thought about it for like two days like it would be a better world, you know? And if you mm-hmm. think you're like 90% good listener and you go to 92, you know, like it's good. It would be good. This, right. <laughs> this is the kind of self-help, like there is no possible harm. So why not? You know, and why I think what people who are good listeners, how they can apply it is think like, where else can I apply this? Because it's easy to think about it in a teaching or a relationship context, a romantic relationship context, I mean, but people, everybody struggles with having friends as an adult, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's one of the hardest aspects of adulthood or struggle with talking to people outside of their age group, you know, like, can you confidently have a really good conversation with like a 17 year old girl? I mean, Todd, 
yeah, you probably you are good at talking to anybody, but like (laughs) others might that might be out of their comfort zone, you know, and I think that's the book is for everybody and anyone who congratulates themselves on being a good listener. This I've learned from improv, like those are the people I'm the most deeply suspicious of. Um, Yeah. You, uh, so yeah. can I give you can I give you a good example of bad listening and and then the the group um the group complexity of bad listening so I have to go to this meeting once a month of every chair in the college that I'm in the and best. so is, yeah. we sit in a room there's there's 30 individual programs that we're chairs of and then the dean is holding this meeting and, and then all the leadership, all the associate deans, they all sit in the front room and there's 40 of us. We're in a big square and it's a room filled with really smart, interesting people, none of whom ever want to talk, none of whom ever want to raise their hands. But what they'll do, someone will be talking, someone will get up and do a talk about like, oh, um, we need to talk about space limitations for uh, classrooms over 100 and how we can do stuff. Things that have a real world problem for a lot of the professors. And what the professors will do is they will open up their their backpacks, they will take out their laptops, and they'll just begin writing. Like looking at emails, just scrolling through, typing things, and then they just won't look up for the rest of the time. And it's not like they're even pretending to take notes about what's happening in the meeting. They're just doing their own thing. And no one says anything about it. Everyone just pretends it's not happening. The dean doesn't get upset about it because the dean probably is like, well, I'm not interested in this either. Um, But it is... And then the meeting ends. Everyone gets up and says, "So this will all be on the SharePoint. I can I can read whatever was said later. Great, thank you." And they get up and leave. That's a nightmare and so common. And I think like this is where the super listening has to happen, especially in leadership. Like if that's happening, somebody needs to be saying, "Do we need to have this meeting? Right? Or is this meeting done the correct way?" Um, and that's just (laughs) like we can't we can't just criticize the people at the bottom of the chain who are like struggling to listen we have to use listening to change systems and really be opening to questioning you know how things work that's part of listening too did you guys watch the impeachment i listened to a lot of it yeah i i kept turning it off whenever the republicans talked Um, I, I think, you know, going back to your point, Julia, about like who is this book is for, um, I realized while I was reading it that because there's like an obvious person or an obvious culprit that we all have, like the person who texts while we're having dinner or is on their computer during a, a board meeting. Um, there's like that kind of not listening where you're like, oh, this is just a bad listener. Um, but there's also a person like in my life who, while I was reading this book, I realized is not a good listener. And I had never occurred to me that this person was not a good listener. But what by reading this book, I realized like this is a very anxious person in my oh, life. Yeah. And this person yes. is never content and f- always repeating themselves and feeling mm-hmm. like they're never being heard. And yes. and like all, and and doesn't change their mind very well. You know, this person is like always and so like I would love to give this person this book because they don't think they're a bad listener. I know they don't, you know, and they don't have the mm-hmm. bad habits that we're talking about of like mm-hmm. looking at their phone, the more obvious, but their anxiety levels are completely yeah. like incapacitating them. And so I don't know how to do it nicely because I'm not close enough, I don't think, to hand this person yeah. this book. But maybe, you know, to bring it up in a group conversation that they're a part of to say like, to, to recognize that listening might be your problem and not the other things that you think are your problem. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like that. Well, um, and I think so, 
sorry to keep bringing it back to this, but this is what I experience when I'm teaching improv. These people are not dicks and they are certainly not distracted. They're actually so focused on what they're doing and wanting to do well and perform well that they are not relaxed enough to listen. Like they need other people to be like, it's cool. Whatever happens, happens. And this is, of course, like the whole art form. But, you know, like these are people who are trying so hard or are so concerned about embarrassing themselves or their social situation in a group or whatever that they can't listen because it's the voice in their head is so loud. Like, I have to say the right thing. I have to do the right thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that those are the people like they deserve so much love and empathy. And I mean, I'm sure we all fall into that category in certain times and places. Um, Like we can't just say people who are bad listeners are bad people. It's like our culture has created so much pressure that we have all kind of turned. Okay. Well, you deal with him in your own time. But yeah, I think that's who this is for really is people who are so worried about how they look or how they sound or feeling like uh, there's a blurb somewhere on this book, maybe in the back or something. It's like, it's not just about like, we feel every time we speak, we're like advancing our personal brand. And that really resonated with Yeah. You know, that pressure we have to take off people. Well, to go back to what to this person you're talking about, and she mentions anxiety uh, in the book about like becoming so paralyzed with the anxiety of what their response is going to be that they right. that they lose a train of thought. But it also occurs to me that um, really good listeners, but also really good talkers, um, and maybe this is true just sort of of leaders, maybe aren't afraid to um, look silly. You know, they aren't afraid to periodically not have the answer or um, to mock themselves, to be self-deprecating, um, but to to be wrong. They're not afraid to be wrong. Um, and I, there's, there's a lot of freedom in that, like to, to realize I, I might make an ass out of myself and that's okay. It's not going to, it's not going to paralyze me for the rest of my life. And, and maybe that's, maybe that's that, that one sort of standard deviation that most people don't have because most people don't want to look like an asshole (laughs) (laughs) generally speaking they don't want to be embarrassed they don't want to be embarrassed they don't no one wants to be embarrassed but i think the ability to to make yourself look silly intentionally um or or to the ability to be Be wrong wrong. take advice that's huge like because that means that you're open to someone else's opinion being better than your own and that's some advanced thinking. And, and in fact, she mentions um, a, a bit of that sort of advanced thinking in here. But that's true. It's like to recognize that your own um, consciousness is the wrong one. Like that's hard for the brain to process that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just as hard as it is for me to imagine not thinking in, in sentences, but thinking of like a triangle with my mother's face chasing me through a mall (laughs) like that's that's my anxiety now (laughs) literary disco is produced and edited by justin alvarez for lit hub radio you can reach out to us directly on twitter at literary disco happy reading everybody and thanks for listening